If you've been with us, uh, you know we're in week three of our Family Values series, a series of our family values as we seek to take inventory on how we are doing as a church. Uh, We've got four characteristics, values that we want to be known by when the world around us, those around us know and see us uh, as a church body. Uh, Week one, we looked at doctrine. Pastor Brandon uh, preached on the importance of doctrine being the foundation of uh, what we are, God's word being the foundation. Uh, Last week, Pastor Gabe uh, taught wonderfully on discipleship and what does it mean to uh, then uh, live together and, and to disciple one another and to obey the commands of Jesus to do that. Today we're going to look at devotion. Uh, Lord willing, next week we will look at what it means to be deployed. What do we do now as Christians? Where do we go? What do we do? Uh, how do we live on mission as God's people? Uh, today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. I'm teaching from the ESV. Uh, we have some copies in the back if you need a copy of God's Word. We don't put the uh, Scripture on screen. I want you to look at it, uh, be familiar with God's Word, be able to open, turn uh, to uh, specific passages, uh, underline, take notes, uh, do whatever will help you. But I'm going to read this for us, Galatians chapter 6, Galatians in the New Testament. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, don't be afraid to ask somebody. Uh, the big numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are going to be the verses. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Let me read this for us, and I'm going to pray, and then we will get into what God would have for us. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Would you listen to the word of God? Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. And not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let me pray. Father, we need your help today. So as we approach your word, we ask what we know not, you would teach us. What we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us. By your grace, for your glory, and God's people said, amen. It's an unfortunate reality that in our day and age, our culture has become increasingly and improperly comfortable with surface-level relationships. Surface-level relationships lack the depth and knowledge and commitment to one another, 
They're typically defined by something that barely grazes the surface of one's existence. Uh, Simply put, uh, they are superficial. Surface-level relationships can be based on shared interest, a common goal or mission, a common stage of life even. Or sometimes it's in an admiration of one's lifestyle or character. Uh, We often see this play out in social media. Uh, Maybe you follow someone because of who they are, what they say. Uh, You follow them, and uh, over time, as you continue to follow what this person says, you develop some type of relational tie to this person, and you feel as if you know them. Let's be honest. Surface-level relationships are usually low-risk, high-reward, at least for a season. The participants don't worry much about the residual effects of relational loss because the emotional investment is minimal. So moving from one surface-level relationship to another is somewhat seamless and natural. This is not to say that all surface-level relationships are wrong or that every single one of your relationships has to be a deeply devoted relationship where you know every single detail of the other individual. You should aim to be kind to all, to do good to everyone, as we just read. If you use social media, you should avoid all the trash and debauchery and follow good godly people that will influence you in the right way to pursue a life of holiness and godliness. But there is a problem when our affection for surface-level relationships creeps its way into our thinking and our interaction within the church. Now, I understand that many have been hurt by the church, by members of the churches that they may have been a part of. There are many that have loved and served others well, only to have those same people turn around and hurt them, sometimes even intentionally. I understand that many people are introverts, and building relationships is really hard. It seems very laborious and just lofty, and you don't want to do it. Some of us are extroverts, right? And we like to talk to everyone, and we don't really have time to really just spend a lot of time with one or a few people to get devoted to them. But brothers and sisters, we cannot let our experiences or preferences reshape or redefine God's instruction and design for his people. We must be people of the word. As Christians, we must allow God's word to be our ultimate means of authority as it shapes us into the people God has called us to be. And so my goal today is to show that God intends for his people to live a life of counter-cultural devotion to one another that transcends the comfort and convenience of surface-level relationships. Let me go ahead and just give you the why. Let me lay out the why this matters. Because if we just develop relationships that are very devotional and care for one another in a biblical way just as a means of an end for itself, then we've missed the mark. It matters because as Christians, we are beneficiaries of a Savior who went 
far above and beyond surface-level relationships. He gave himself to his people. He laid down his life and gave his life in order that we may live. Furthermore, Jesus commands us to love one another in the same self-sacrificing way that he demonstrated to us when he gave himself for us. Uh, turn with me real quick to John 13, 34. I want to read this for you. I want you to see this for yourself. John 13, 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you what? You love one another. By this, by, by doing this right here, by loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think it's pretty clear that this is something that we should do if we intend to obey the Savior who gave himself for us. So let me define devotion as we define it within our church CCF defines devotion as, and once again, all of this is on our website. It's on our values um, page. You can see it there. But the definition is simple. It's a sincere commitment to the spiritual and physical needs of one another for the glory of God. It's a sincere commitment to the spiritual and physical needs of one another for the glory of God. I want you to notice two words, sincere commitment. It's not something that just happens by chance. It's something we must be committed to doing. But what should it look like? How does this happen? Give us some tangibles. What are some specifics? And I want to help us to see that. I want us to help us to see what real Christian devotion should look like. And that brings us to our text today. Galatians 6, 1 through 10, we're going to look at six commitments that characterize Christian devotion. Six commitments that characterize Christian devotion. Now, let me just put this into context here since we're jumping into the end of an epistle. Context is very important. It's context is king, many would say. The letter of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul in a time where they were faced with a lot of false teachers. A lot of people coming in telling them that converts to Christianity also had to follow the Mosaic law, the ceremonial laws, external laws as well. So they were adding to the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel of faith in Christ alone for salvation. Amen to that. That is a good thing that that's what salvation is. They were denying the heart of the gospel. They were denying it. They were saying, you've got to do that, but you also have to do this. And the structure of this letter is very simple. Paul starts this letter with uh, just a greeting, saying, hi, here's who I am. Then he reminds the Galatians Throughout chapter 2 of his credentials as an apostle, it's like, hey, remember who I am. This is how 
I became an apostle. This is who I am. And then chapters 3, 4, and 5, uh, most of 5 at least, we get this uh, just treaty of doctrinal richness where he just exasperates even the gospel and what justification by faith alone is and what it means and how it's only found through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to sure salvation. And then in verse 16 of chapter 5, Paul begins a concise summary of what life in the Spirit actually is. Uh, That's where we get the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says evidence of these virtues is how we know we are walking by the Spirit. And then after Paul gives much-needed attention to Christian doctrine, he turns his attention now in chapter 6 to Christian duty. So this is what we do. This is how we are to live. This is typical of Paul's writing. There's doctrine, then followed by duty. We do something now. We have to now act in accordance to what we have learned. Now, in this specific letter, I find it very telling that immediately after exhorting the Galatians to live by the Spirit, he gives them some very practical instructions. He doesn't give them any, like, super highly spiritual experience that now they have to have. He says, hey, this is what you do now. Like, this is how you show that you are in the Spirit. You, you do these practical things. The implications are clear and simple. If we're going to be a church that is known by its devotion to one another, if we're going to follow Jesus' command in John chapter 13 and be known by our love for one another, we must be active and put into practice some tangible action that demonstrates the activity of our saviors. He came to seek and save the lost. So let's look at 6, 1 through 10, Galatians, as we note six commitments that characterize Christian devotion. There's a few of these I'll spend a little more time on, uh, and then others that we will look at more briefly. But our first commitment is a commitment to gentle restoration, a commitment to gentle Restoration. We see that very quickly in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He goes on to say, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, first I want us to notice the familial language that Paul uses here. He says, brothers... Here Paul is communicating to us that the church is a family. It's a, it's a family. And, you know, I've got to ask, it begs the question, how do you think of the church? Like, like what comes to mind when you think of a church? Do you think of a business? Uh, do you think of an event? Maybe you approach the church as a consumer, And you think of, what can I get out of this? Like, what do they have to offer me? 
Maybe you think of the church as a kind of a social club that affords you the opportunity to pick and choose when and how you will participate. Brothers and sisters, we see in countless places in Scripture that we are told that the church is the family of God. Uh, For example, in Ephesians 2, we read that we are members of the household of God. It's a family. It's God's household. We are members of that household. In 1 John 3, we see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. We're God's children, his family. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When we obey Jesus, we follow the will of God, Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. Man, that is good news. Later in this passage, right, Paul says the household of faith. And once again, there are many other places where we see this. But beloved, I would compel you to think and just encourage you to think as the church, as a family. Get that into your head. Understand that the church is most importantly God's chosen family. Listen, we will greatly benefit when we treat the church accordingly. We will greatly benefit. We will greatly grow if we simply come to the understanding that the church is indeed the family of God. And then what Paul tells us here is that there's going to be times when our family members are going to stumble. There's going to be some times here when they're caught in sin. They will transgress, or in other words, it's they will do something wrong. And so what are we supposed to do when that happens, when our family members transgress, when they fall into sin? Do we ignore it? No. Do we talk about them behind their backs? No. Do we just kick them out, say, hey, you're not welcome back here? No. Paul gives us instruction here. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So to summarize, someone who is spiritual, meaning someone who is living and walking according to the Holy Spirit, and how do you know if you're doing that? Well, we look at ourselves in accordance to the fruits of the Spirit. Just, just mention that. All right, we, we, we test ourselves against that. Are we bearing the fruits of the Spirit? It's not a special spiritual elite force that goes in and now handles this situation. It's not those that have somehow done something above and beyond everyone else. It is those who are spiritual. Those who are walking in the Spirit. Put this into context of where it is. Speaks of the one who is showing signs of Christian maturity. Showing signs of the Spirit. And what should this spiritual person do? Paul tells us to restore him. Restore restore him in a spirit of 
gentleness. Now, the word restore here is a medical language. It comes from a medical term that means to put back into place. Uh, think of like a broken arm or something. You restore it, a fracture, they're, they're putting it back together. They're making it healthy again. They're helping to, to, to get it back to the way that it should be. We are told that we are to restore gently, not harshly, not angrily, not frustrated, but gently. Now, gentleness doesn't mean a lack of firmness or directness. I'm gentle when I correct my children, um, but that, does, that means that I, I don't yell and scream and call them names. I, I don't yell at them when I'm correcting them, but I am direct and firm on, hey, this is what has to happen. Like, like this is just what has to happen, buddy. You've got to do this. We, we have to do that. Tell them the truth about their actions, what changes then need to be made. It's a directness that comes from that. But then we also see that there's a warning here for those that would do the job of restoration. He says you've got to be careful that you avoid falling into the same sin. He says keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Let me just tell you, you and I can never think we are above any sin. It is only by God's grace that we do not do some of the things that we don't do. It is by God's grace. It is by his mercy. We've got to keep watch on our lives. We've got to make sure that we ensure that we are prayerfully waging war on every desire of the flesh to ensure we do not transgress ourselves when we are dealing with others' sin. But we must be a church that is committed to gentle restoration. We've got to commit to that. We have to be a church that is committed to this characteristic if we are to find ourselves following Christ as he's called us to do. Paul then moves his attention from those who are sinning to those who are burdened in verse 2. We read, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So quickly we see our second commitment of Christian devotion here. We see we must be a people that are committed to burden-bearing. Burden-bearing. What is a burden? Well, this word means a weighty or heavy load. Or in other words, something that you can't carry alone. You ever gotten a, a box or some type of shipment or something, and it says like team lift on there? It means like go get some help. Don't try to pick this thing up yourself. You need help. You can't do it alone. And this reminds us that there are hardships in this life that we need help with. Like we, we are made for community. And community provides this opportunity to lock arms 
when we face the troubles of the world. Remember, Jesus tells us that, right? There will be troubles. There will be hardships of many kinds. By God's grace, he has given us the good gift of the church to be a family, to rally around one another, and to help to carry the burdens that are too heavy to carry alone. Do you know what the biggest obstacle to burden bearing is? Usually it's pride. It's pride in oneself that just doesn't want to ask for help. We don't want to seem weak. We don't want to seem helpless. We don't want people to think that we're less mature than them or that we just don't have it all figured out. Pride stands in the way of this far too often. What this does is prevents your brothers and sisters from doing what? Look at the text. What do we do? What happens when we bear one another's burdens? We fulfill the law of Christ. We get this opportunity to fulfill the law of our Savior. And what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the moral law, to love God, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I would add that it's also the commandment we just read in John 13. To, to love one another. We are to love one another. And so how can we display that love? We get to bear one another's burdens. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need each other. Like, like we need each other. We need support while we navigate the complexities of living in a fallen world. Uh, this could mean helping someone that's sick helping someone that's unable to maybe care for their family for a time, providing food, providing care, financial support. I mean, helping someone that maybe is a widow, recently widowed, or someone that doesn't have any living family members, inviting them into our home and inviting them into sharing our family as well. Helping when burdens come by way of financial hardships, by way of spiritual hardships, emotional hardships, mental hardships. I mean, the list goes on and on. Brothers and sisters, what's important to see is that we need each other. We need one another to bear these things. Martin Luther once wrote, Quote, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones that they may bear the weakness of their brethren. Brothers and sisters, I must ask you, are you intentionally looking for ways to bear the burden of those around you? Are you intentionally looking for burden people? Are you active in trying to find ways to help. Maybe you're carrying burdens, and maybe pride has gotten in the way of just asking for help, just saying like, hey, I, I need some help. And that's not to say that everyone's going to be able to figure everything out or uh, come and just immediately take that from you, but the plan is that we work together to work towards a solution. And we see how the Lord would work in and through that. Now, this also means, and we see very quickly, that 
every single problem that comes in life is not a burden. Every single thing that happens that is hard is not necessarily a biblical burden. We see that in verses 3 through 5. Let's look there. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. For then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Uh, Here we see our third commitment, and that is a commitment to self-examination. A commitment to self-examination. So Paul quickly reminds his reader that Christians are to test their own work to ensure that what? They are remaining humble. It should be a consistent self-examination as we test our own work. And then he says in verse 5 that each will have to bear his own load. Uh, here, this word load means like a backpack, like a pack, something that you can carry on your own, something an individual should be able to handle. So essentially what Paul is saying is that there are things in life that we carry alone because God has equipped us to carry those things. But during our carrying, we need to make sure that we are taking self-honest examination to ensure that we are not evaluating ourselves and our progress against the progress of others, those that may be struggling those that may have a a problem and a hardship of one that we're not familiar with. What we're told here is that we are to test the Spirit's work in our own life, in the lives of our self. We are to examine ourselves. Another way to put this is that our spiritual flourishment is not contingent on the failing of others. Let me say that again. Some of us need to hear that twice. Our spiritual flourishment is not contingent on the failing of others. Listen, some celebrate when others fail, don't they? They think of themselves as better because they didn't fall too. Man, Paul really knows the human condition, doesn't he? He knows how to speak into the human heart here. He knows that we have a tendency to do that. He says here, if you think you are something when you are nothing, then you are deceiving yourself. Listen, hear this and hear it clear. Anything good in you or me is a gift of God. Anything good. Anything good that comes from Tyler Cash is all a gift of God. It's all on account of his grace, his kindness, his mercy. And we must remember this as we commit ourselves to self-examination. We're dealing with one another. We're helping one another. Let us not be a people that gets haughty and proud because we're the ones offering the help. Let us examine ourselves. 
Our fourth commitment is a commitment to generosity. We see this in verse 6. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. All right, so admittedly, this is an awkward passage to teach, right? Uh, This is an awkward passage to address because essentially what this says is that pastors should get paid for preaching the word. And I'm preaching the word right now. And I didn't write the letter. I just delivered the mail, right? I didn't put this here. But this isn't the only place that Paul gives this type of instruction either. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, and then in 14, he says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then in verse 14, he says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And see, what's probably happening here in this letter, and the reason why Paul addresses this, is that while they're surrounded by false teachers, Paul is just, he's commending and and exhorting the, the Christians in Galatia to support healthy teachers to combat the false teaching that is coming around. He's like, look, hey, you've got to make some sacrifices here. And right now it's financial sacrifices so that you can obtain good teachers for yourself. They needed good teachers that will rightly teach them the truth. And we do as well today. And in order to ensure that these teachers are able to commit themselves to studying, to prayer, and to the ministry of the word, the church should care for the financial needs of that teacher so that financial hardships do not become burdensome and overwhelming and distracting. Let's not miss Paul's main point here, though. Okay, there's a main point that I think he has in his writing. His ultimate concern is not the money. The ultimate concern here is the advancement of the gospel. I mean, that's the heart of this. Free them up so the gospel can go forth. The gospel can be proclaimed. The church can be built up. One commentator puts it like this. Care for those who teach not out of obligation or tradition, but because you love the word of God and you want to see it spread to the ends of the earth. Commitment to generosity is a characteristic of Christian devotion. And my prayer is that we would be a church that would have the financial strength to train, send, and support pastors to preach the word all over the globe. We read on verses 7 through 8, and we see our fifth commitment. We see that there is a commitment here to personal holiness as well. He says, do not be deceived. 
God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Uh, Here we read of the divine law, very simple law that you reap what you sow. That doesn't change from one context to another. We need to know that we will reap what we sow. What you invest your time, treasure, and talent in is what you will harvest. That is what you will reap. If you invest in fleshly things and worldly things, you will reap worldly things. Notice Paul's warning here. He says, do not be deceived. Christian, do you know that your most common opponent in the Christian life is yourself? It's your own flesh. It's your sinful flesh that continues to wage war on itself. Often people blame uh, sin or bad situations on like spiritual warfare, right? You know, the devil made me do it. It's the devil had, you know, tempted me over here and there is temptation that will come. But our biggest opponent is ourselves. It's within us. See, although our status in Christ declares us fully forgiven and righteous, because we, we've obtained his righteousness as if we've never even sinned, but we still live in the reality of the already but not yet is we are being perfected. We're being prepared for presentation to Christ as his bride. We're being sanctified in this life. We still live in a fallen world surrounded by sin. We still wrestle with the desires of the flesh. And unfortunately, it is often the case that we convince ourselves that we can sow into the flesh and everything will be okay. We persuade ourselves, right? Like just this one time, it'll be okay. Like, no one will know. I'll, I'll just do it one, once more. It, it, it's fine to watch that. It's cool. Like, I, I know there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, I wouldn't want to sit there and watch with my pastors, but I'll just watch it again. It, it's fine. No, it, it's fine to listen to that. That's, that's, it, it's okay, right? We convince ourselves that, like, nothing will happen if I do these things. That everything will be just fine. How bad is it really? Everyone else is doing it. When it comes to sowing and reaping, we must remember Jeremiah 17, 19, or 17, 9, pardon me. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the heart here doesn't mean the, the, the organ in your chest that goes bump, 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 bump. It means your being, your flesh, the central component to your existence. It's deceitful. It's deceiving. 
must measure what our heart wants against what the Bible calls us to be. We must measure what our heart wants, our fleshly desires, with the instructions that Paul gives us here. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. Corruption is a pretty serious word. We will reap corruption here. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Brother and sister, I must ask you, what do you want? Do you want corruption or do you want eternal life? Listen, this is played out in all kinds of ways, right? From entertainment choices to friend groups to personal choices on how you spend your money. I mean, each of us has to take evaluation of our own lives. This goes back to the self-examination, right? We must ensure that we are living a life that pursues personal holiness for the good of ourselves and those around us. Remember, who does the restoration when someone falls into sin? Those who are spiritual. Those who are sowing to the Spirit, investing themselves in godly things. Do others outside of the church know that you're a Christian? What would people say about you? What would they say about me? What would they say if they even found out you were a member of a church? Would they be surprised? Would they be put off? What does your social media feed say about how you live? How are you sowing? What do you want? Personal holiness is a characteristic of true Christian devotion. Brothers and sisters, let's commit ourselves to being a church that is serious about the ways we live. Our last commitment here we see is a commitment to doing good. Commitment to doing good. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now here we see a little encouragement to Paul's reader. We see this promise that those that aim to sow in the Spirit will reap good benefits if we don't give up. And then we also see that we will reap in due season. This means God's timing and not our own. So listen, everything doesn't happen the way we want it. Uh, the timing of things is not on our schedule. It's on the creator's schedule. And we must be a people that submit to that and are okay with it and trust 
it. But we're promised here that even though we may not see the full benefits now or exactly when we want them, we are promised that good will come. And we are told here to generally, first, do good to everyone. Like, we should be a people that aims to do good to others. Brothers and sisters, is this your goal? Do you aim to do good to others? Or do you just have an aim for others to do good to you? Do you just want everyone and everything to be your way? Are you the one that always wants to be served? Are you the one that always aims to serve others? How are you doing good to those around you? Another thing to ask is when someone does ask for help, do you treat it as an inconvenience? You know, I mentioned earlier that pride is a hindrance to burden bearing because pride prevents many from asking or receiving help from others. But it's important to note here that it's also the case that many have given up on asking for help because when they do, people treat it as an inconvenience. Ah, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, like, I was, you know, I planned on doing this, but yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe just your attitude, your demeanor just comes across as one that, like, oh, yeah, I'll probably never ask them for help ever again. Must look at ourselves. Must be committed to doing good. Must say, like, hey, we are a people that has been given so much good that now we will do good. As we were, as we're told, we were prepared. We were created. We were saved for good works. Now walk in them. This is the church, brothers and sisters. We must be committed to those around us. And the church is the place where it happens. He says here, the household of faith. That's where your brothers and sisters dwell. Covenant fellowship that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, especially these people, generally everyone, particularly your brothers and sisters in the faith, those who you have committed to, let there not be a need amongst us I, I, I cannot wait for the day where we need people to serve is removed from our announcements. It should not be an ask every week. We should have people eager to serve one another, to help, to do good practically within the church. How are you serving? So how are you practicing this today? How are you practicing these things? How are you living your life? How are you doing good to your fellow brothers and sisters? You know, as a father, one of the things I love to see my kids doing is getting along. Just doing good to one another, right? Serving one another, caring for one another, not fighting over toys, helping out, helping their mother. I love to see it. And I just can't help but not think that God doesn't feel the same way. God wants to see his people 
living in a way that models his character. And that is one of self-sacrifice. So brothers and sisters, as we press on in this life, let us reject the comfort of surface-level relationships as we aim to be a church that is characterized by devotion as we commit ourselves to these six things. And may our imperfect love for one another point the watching world to the perfect love of our Savior. And would others come to know the saving love of Jesus in how we live? Let's commit to that. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your kindness, for the good gift of the church. We thank you, Lord, that it's not up to us to accomplish salvation, but, Lord, you have given us instruction to now walk in a way that is worthy the calling to which we've been called. Let us not drift into the comfort of surface-level relationships, those that are not substantial or meaningful, but help us be a people that are committed to one another, devoted to the spiritual health and the physical health of our brothers and sisters. For our good and your glory, in Christ's name, amen.